Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery podcast. My name's Lucas Rickert, and welcome to everyone. So I'm thrilled to talk with uh, Dr. Benjamin Breen this episode. Who is Benjamin? He's an assistant professor in the history department at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He trained as an early modernist at the University of Texas at Austin, and then he held a postdoc at Columbia University. Let's see, he's written a lot. Uh, He's contributed to The Atlantic and to Slate and to Eon. He's written for the Pacific Standard and the Chronicle of Higher Education. He's also written a number of uh, academic articles and chapters. Uh, But today, uh, uh, Ben and I are going to talk about uh, his book. Uh, It's called The Age of Intoxication, Origins of the global drug trade with the University of Pennsylvania Press. And uh, it comes out this month. It actually comes out on the the 20th. And uh, so it's awesome. And it's awesome for a number of reasons, uh, one of which it has a monkey on the cover smoking a pipe. And so you should should absolutely get it for that reason, of course, but many others, which we'll we'll get into today. So, Ben, it's, it's fantastic to talk to you. Hi, Lucas. It's uh, good to be here. Thank you for having me on. So we'll get into the the really deep questions um, in a couple of minutes, but I just want to kind of sketch out for listeners sort of the, the basic contours of, of the book. Um, so The Age of Intoxication is uh, as a story, I suppose, of a time when, when drugs as we know them um, weren't really yet separated into um, convenient categories that we know now. So recreational drugs versus uh, medicinal drugs or legal versus illegal drugs. So um, there was no real serious distinction between uh, the pharmacist and and the drug dealer. And so I think it's very topical these days. Um, So that's it. And sort of broad strokes. Is that that been sort of a fair assessment? Yeah, um, I think that... uh... The book actually sort of focuses on the Portuguese Empire, so that's one thing to to flag that it's it's taking a different approach spatially mm. to the story of drugs uh, by moving out of. I think a lot of work on on the drug trade, especially in the early modern period, is focused on Europe, uh, especially European capitals like London, um, and this is trying to look more globally at how drugs emerged out of um, colonial spaces as well as in metropoles like London. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a, gr- a good description of the book. So Portugal, let let okay. I want to get into Portugal, but let let's start off with you first, I guess. Um, uh, so tell us a little bit about your your backstory and um, how do you um, decide on on studying drugs in in Portugal and elsewhere? 
Um, it's a really good question. It's, it's a question that I've I've answered differently at different times, to be honest <laughs> with you. <laughs> um, so I had my answer for job interviews when I was in the job market that yeah. was slightly different than the answer I will give now. <laughs> um, and so my job interview answer, which is true, but it's only part of the story, is that I um, I was really fascinated. I've always been fascinated by um, the age of imperialism and um, the, its sort of um, legacies today, decolonization and the, the ways we can see this sort of um, uh, legacy of colonization all around us. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess for Portugal, the part of that is that my grandparents on one side were immigrants from Portugal. And so I kind of had the submerged sort of colonial legacy there as well. Um, cause they came by way of Brazil and there's just a lot of, of that background that I always wondered about growing up. Mm. Um, and then when I got into grad school, I was originally going to be an historian, uh, working on, um, really an historian of magic and, um, sort of early modern occult thought, which I'm still interested in. Okay. Um, I was really fascinated by John D this, uh, Elizabethan, sometimes people say he's like the court, court astrologer to Queen Elizabeth, which is somewhat true. He was definitely like an advisor to Queen Elizabeth, um, as well as being a, um, an occultist and sort of a wizardly type of figure. Um, and he, I, I, I got very deep in studying him. Um, and then through him got really interested in, um, actually, um, his friend, Sir Walter Raleigh. Um, and then via that, I, I got into the history of tobacco. I'm sure you're familiar with, there's a lot of great stuff on, on the history of tobacco, mm -hmm. as well as amazing sources like uh, King James counterblast to tobacco. Yeah. Um, so that was one way in and, and just getting fascinated in the spice trade in general as, a, as an engine of imperialism. Um, one of the, the real motive forces for why people like um, Raleigh or Columbus or Vasco da Gama were even go doing what they were doing was searching for spices. Um, mm. And I came to realize that in the language of the 16th and 17th centuries, there basically was no distinction between spice and drug. Um, huh. They kind of lumped them together. And this is not just true in English, but it's true in Portuguese and Spanish um, and Latin. You know, they would call something um, aromata or aromatum in Latin, which could you could literally translate that as spice or drug, depending on context. Okay. Um, and the same is true, you know, it, in Portuguese, when they talk about um, it, you know, drugs of India, drogas da India, it, it, they could mean like cinnamon or nutmeg, or they could mean opium. And so that's really how I got into it as a topic is just realizing that drugs meant something very different um, in the early modern period. And mm -hmm. I got fascinated by how they shifted and, and what that story was. And I couldn't really find a book that covered that, that entire history. Um, so I just became interested in, in researching it for that reason. The part I didn't say in job interviews is that <laughs> At the same time I started grad school um, in 2008, my sister, my, my older sister, became a, a cannabis grower in Northern California mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the medical marijuana industry. And so I got through her really interested in the contemporary um, impact of drug legalization and the sort of countercultures of drugs in, in the present day. And, and that kind of inspired my interest in pushing a colonial early modern story up into the present and finding connections with the present, um, of which I, th I think there are many, but originally that was sort of not, I, I, I it took me a while to find a way to connect those two strands of interest. Um, and that's really what the book emerged out of. Oh, that's fascinating. 
the way that you can be, you know, shaped what's happening in the present time. And then that, you know, helps you decide that you want to write about uh, Portuguese drugs. And uh, uh, yeah, I didn't know that about you. That's cool. Um, I, so part one of your book is called The Inventions of Drugs. Um, chapter one is called Searching for Drugs. Uh, chapter two is Selling Drugs. And then chapter three is fetishizing drugs. Uh, I mean, you, you jump from 17th century Amazonia uh, to West Central Africa. The breadth of the analysis um, is something that was a little bit eye-popping and, and, and knocked my socks off, too. I mean, I, I study North America in, in the 20th century. And so it, it, it led me to uh, think that you were complicating uh, historians of drugs' uh, understandings um, a little bit more deeply. Um, and understandings, I guess, uh, of how boundaries are crossed, literal and figurative boundaries are crossed. Um, so, you know, maybe I'm, I, I mean, I'm rambling, I'm sorry, but I mean, can you tell me, um, you know, what sort of other areas researchers need to go when, when we start thinking deeply about the history of drugs? Um, yeah, I, I think that, um, well, so you called your book um, Strange Trips in part to kind of get at that traveling nature of drugs, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that's really insightful. I think that's true. That it, That's also part of what interests me in drugs is that they, they're by nature, they cross boundaries, right? Mm. So they, they're consumable objects. So they move from being an external space to an internal space. They, they move from being materials to things which are influencing the mind or body in a somewhat, you know, a materially based way, but a way that we don't experience that way. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in that sense, they're boundary crossing, but they're also um, major commodities. And, and part of what my book is doing is, is uh, kind of uncovering the ways that drugs became commodified. And in, in that process of commodification, they became uh, major uh, conduits for globalization. So I think one thing that I, I personally believe is really understudied um, in the early, early modern world, but also just in history more generally, is the ways that drugs and medicines um, had a larger impact, um, not just commercially or in the realm of, you know, um, you know, things associated with drug culture, like opium dens or tobacco smoking or taverns, but also just the ways they helped create many elements of modern life. Um, so one thing I've been wanting to read a book on that I hope someone is right, working on is um, <laughs> drug advertising in the early modern period. Um, oh, cool. I, I think it's really a fascinating thing. Uh, as far as I can tell, some of the earliest printed advertisements in, in history uh, were for drugs. So I'm thinking of ads in the back of uh, books printed in the 17th century, um, mm -hmm. which would have, you know, at things like, you know, William Salmon's pills or Sydenham's drops, which were like laudanum um, derivatives. These mm -hmm. kind of things are, as far as I can tell, up, so one of the foundation stones of modern advertising. And then if you look at a magazine from like, you know, if you look at uh, Life magazine from the 40s or 50s and count how many of those ads are for liquor or cigarettes, it's like mm -hmm. the majority, right? So I, I think that's kind of an underrated element in uh, not just advertising, but just the whole modern commercialized world that we live in. Yeah. Um, it's hard to understate how important 
especially addictive drugs were for helping make that possible. Um, and that's another thing is just the idea of addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a few people I know working on that, but, but I, I really think it's, it's a, um, it's a very compelling angle on especially the, the period of the slave trade, uh, the period of the rise of global capitalism to see it through the lens of addictive substances. Um, and, and also, you know, I'm thinking here, not just about tobacco and alcohol, but, you know, Sidney Mintz, uh, his work on sugar. Um, I think that's a really effective way of thinking about what drives global trade. Mm -hmm. um, it's often things that we have a, habitual um hunger for something that maybe is not a, a necessity but something that we kind of as a society um fetishize or or think of as something to be desired right yeah. and so i i really think that there's a larger scope for the history of drugs that goes beyond just studying individual substances or or seeing them just in the context of the history of medicine where a lot of the good work has been done i think so far so, by the way, the, the American Institute of the History of Pharmacy, where I'm at, we've got this trade catalog collection that goes back to the late 1700s that, you know, showcases quite a few of these, these ads that you're talking about. But it's, but it's Europe and, and, and the United States. Um, uh, and so, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is I'd, I'd like to see it in other places as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there, one of the ads I was thinking of is actually um, a pamphlet that was printed in Guatemala, circa mm. 1700, and it's an advertisement for a local drug. And it's just one of those things that I just found in the John Carter Brown Library um, in Providence, and I think it only exists in one copy now. <laughs> it's like this kind of these 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 sort of documents exist in archives, but they haven't really been um, contextualized or brought together. Mm. Um, in part because they're so far flung and also because um, it's just really hard to um, make a larger narrative out of them, I think. Uh, I think it's easier to make a narrative about, you know, the rise of um, like uh, medical doctors in 18th century London, for instance, mm -hmm. like Roy Porter type, his type of work mm -hmm. where there's a really rich source base and documentation. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the real challenge is trying to go beyond a Eurocentric understanding by creative use of sources or looking further afield for, for texts. Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually what led me to Portugal because Portugal has a really rich history of involvement in the drug trade and in medical history um, that goes back, you know, to the middle ages. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I would love to see people, for instance, working more on the history of, of medicine and drugs in Africa in sub Saharan mm -hmm. Africa. Um, I think that's a really rich field. Uh, yeah, there was a conference in South Africa recently uh, that I couldn't attend. It was Welcome Trust funded. It's um, the dichotomy between good and evil when it comes to to medicines. Why we think of some as bad, why we think of some as good, and I'm, I'm hopeful that you know some some intriguing studies come out of that conference. Um, but, you know, for you, um, what you were just talking about leads me naturally, I think, into, into, an, into sort of another question, which ha happens to be about, so early modern is your period, right? And so for folks who are listening, who don't might know what early modern is, the, the time period is, um, well, actually, what, what would you say your time period is? Well, um, I'm about to teach an early modern history survey 
to some students here at UC Santa Cruz. And when I teach that, I usually just tell them it's from uh, Columbus to the French Revolution. I think mm -hmm. those are two good touchstones that people all kind of know roughly when that was in both cases mm -hmm. and why it's important. Um, I think that you can push it, the boundaries a little bit. I, I like to think of it as about 1450 to 1820. Okay. Um, and really, I think it's it's sort of nebulous. Like it's it, it's it, it on both ends, you know, in the 15th century and, and the 19th century, you can kind of push those. But the big stories involved are um, the rise of European imperialism, um, demographic transitions toward urbanization. It's a big one, um, not just in Europe, but around the world. And of course, um, the slave trade uh, in the Atlantic and the really the, the biggest story of that period, in my opinion, is the, the massive um, depopulation of the Americas due oh, yeah. to warfare and epidemic disease and just the effects of European colonization on indigenous peoples in the Americas. Absolutely huge. And um, so I'm going to make a sweeping statement here, and it, it has to do with the way people regard history. Um, but, you know, I, you, you talk to people out on the street and they might think that what you're talking about in that period might not impact them as much as what happened 15, 20 years ago or 50 years ago. It's kind of a, what you'd call a sort of presentist thinking. Um, so, um, you know, can you, can you just say what the, the value is? I, I mean, I hate asking that question, but I mean, can you unpack sort of the, the, like the, the big picture significance of your, your, your book for people who think this way, who think that, you know, maybe thinking about the 1500s doesn't matter uh, as much as the 1950s. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something I do a lot with my students because they often have the same question. And um, I think in, in the case of this book, the answer has a lot to do with um, what the stakes are in the present and how those, those have, antecedents and causes that go back centuries. Mm -hmm. I think we often forget how we ended up like this. And so what I'm talking about when I talk about the stakes, for one, a big part of it is um, the, the massive um, prison population. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm thinking specifically in the United States, but elsewhere as well, that has been caused by drug laws. The criminalization of certain drugs has been one of the, I think, one of the most detrimental um, social forces of the last century purely because, or in large part because it led to such a massive um, rise in imprisonment uh, of pe people who are committing nonviolent offenses. So just in terms of stakes, that's a huge thing. We're talking about millions of people's lives yeah. that have been permanently altered by these laws. And the connection to the past is that even if these laws maybe date to the 1960s or you know sometime in the 20th century, the rationale behind them, the reasoning behind them, is really a colonial rationale. It, it can be tracked back to legacies of um, uh, imperialism, of racism, um, fears of the exotic, or the you know fears of non-European or non-Christian mm -hmm. forms of spiritual practice, um, and and even the idea of prisons, in fact, is coming back from the early modern period. The whole system of criminalization really is an early modern thing. So that's one part of it. Um, another is just that we, I, I think of a lot of people today who are interested in issues of drugs or addiction and recovery, or just even just what I was talking about before, like the role of globalization and, and global trade in history. Um, 
we we see it as such a modern phenomenon that we forget how it started. I mean, the, if we're trying to understand why there is a global drug trade, and not just in legal drugs, I mean, some of the largest companies in the world, as you know, are, are pharmaceutical companies, but there's also a huge black market. I mean, I was reading a statistic that um, if you factored the illegal drug trade into global GDP, it would actually like change the the numbers pretty significantly. Mm. It's like a pretty good chunk of global gross domestic product. Something like 1% is spent on the illegal drug trade. Um, and so understanding that is not just a matter of like sort of niche early modern, you know, stories, but it, it's really about understanding the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other part is, of course, um, you know, I was writing this book during the the heyday, if you will, or the high point of what they now call the opiate epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started the book, it wasn't really even called that. You know, I started thinking about this book in 2009, 2010, right when there was just beginning to be, I think, a, a media attention focused on companies like Purdue and, and um, Johnson & Johnson and these major opiate manufacturers. But in many ways, I think that's a continuation of an 18th century story um, as opiates move from being something that is, you know, a very old part of human society. Like op- opium use, it goes back very, very far. Mm-hmm. But commercial trade in opium, opiates and particularly advertising of opiates um, is really a product of the 18th century. And so if we want to understand why there's an opiate epidemic, if we want to understand why there's an illegal drug trade, why there's a huge prison population due to that trade. Um, I don't think we can look at the 20th century for answers. I think we have to look to the 17th and 18th centuries to know how we got here um, in the present and also what the future is going to be. Because the big, and to me, the most fascinating thing about drugs is that they're constantly changing. They're not fixed. They're always being reshaped, both legally, um, but also culturally in their positioning um, by every passing generation. So if we want to get a sense of where we're headed, um, I don't think it's going to look much like the 20th century. I think the the best guidebook we can have for that is by seeing the deep history of drugs and how much they've changed uh, to allow us to make predictions about the future. So if people are listening to this, they should buy this book, which is called The Age of Intoxication, right away. All right? Because it helps us understand what's going on. And I think you, uh, I mean, that paints a picture um, uh, that's, that's just, I, I think, really important for us to to take a look at as well. Um, so the U.S. Right? You've talked you've talked a lot about the U.S. Um, <clears throat> the prison population, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, partially based on you know mandatory minimum sentences and um, uh, prescriptions that are written by physicians that have to do with. Um, uh, detail men and women talking to doctors about the value of different opiates and opioids. Um, but I think the book has importance and resonance, um, obviously beyond the shores of the United States. And I think that historians are starting to take, uh, and you're within that group, taking a look beyond the United States, uh, Decentering, if you will, or decolonizing drug history narratives, um, and so, if you accept this premise that I'm putting to you, can you say a bit more about uh, some of the changes that are taking place and how and how historians and, and other scholars are examining drug policy moving ahead? Yeah, um, 
It's a big question. I, I think that um, there's a lot of good work being done right now on, as you say, sort of decentering or decolonizing drug history. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Abena Dove, Osio Asari's book, Bitter Roots. Mm. You hear that one? Yeah. It's about um, the 19th century drug trade in Africa. Um, and like the idea of the emergence of bioprospecting, I think is a really interesting example of that. It used to be told as a sort of triumphalist history of old school history of medicine narrative of, you know, heroic doctors going to the jungle and recovering this substance that usually gets thought of as a pharmaceutical, a classic example being quinine, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think now there's a lot of work that's looking at the earlier context or not even earlier. I mean, it's often a uh, parallel history, but the non-European context for bioprospecting, um, like Matthew Crawford's book, um, the Day and Wonder Drug about mm -hmm. the plant that quinine is extracted from, Chinchona, um, is a really good example of that, where it's not taking it as a teleological narrative of this is how Western medicine discovered, quote unquote, this, you know, this drug in the jungle that then became a pharmaceutical. It's really looking at the roots of that story, um, taking it seriously, epistemologically and historically, uh, that there might be more to this than just how a pharmaceutical was extracted from a plant, seeing that plant as a, as a more a whole, in a more holistic way, perhaps, or in a larger context, social context that isn't just one of European medicine. Um, I think that's really promising. And um, I also think it kind of speaks to something that I've been interested in as I reached the end of this book, um, the globalization of alternative medicine, right? Like there's, it's not a, a United States story that people are using um, are yeah, a hybrid of Western medicine and alternative remedies. I think that's really emerging as sort of the global standard in many ways. Um, like the rise of, of um, herbal medicine as a global consumer good, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I think in many ways that's kind of almost a return to a, um, an older global norm that, that we kind of had a, um, a blip in the 19th and 20th centuries of a really really strong focus on prescription drugs that I think we're kind of witnessing a turn back from. I think you could even link in um, the decriminalization of cannabis, actually. Cannabis, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well, mm -hmm. um, globally, um, as part of that. You know, like all this, I've been interested lately in medical research on CBD, for instance. Oh, yeah. Um, and how that's sort of emerging as a pretty major force in global health and, and medical treatments, not just as like a recreational drug. Yeah. Um, so that's something I've been keeping my eye on. And we can talk maybe later also about the, what some people are calling the psychedelic Renaissance, mm -hmm. which I see is very much part of that too. So what's your take on spirituality, Ben? Cause I mean, one thing that struck me at the beginning of your book uh, is you talk about how different drugs should be thought of through various lenses and one of which was the, the, the spirituality side. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I guess it's a, I could talk about historically or on a personal level, um, mm. on a personal level, I'm somewhat allergic to some claims of spiritual forces around drugs because I think they can easily be, um, co-opted for commercial mm -hmm. ends. So I, or, or used sort of by like snake oil salesmen mm -hmm. in a manipulative way. I mean, this is a really reoccurring thing. Um, there's a lot of great work on, on so-called quack doctors in the early modern period, which I, 
I often think of when I see the more um, sort of fringe claims made about certain substances today. Like I'm thinking of like ayahuasca, yeah. you know, people saying ayahuasca cures cancer and so forth. That's a whole can of worms that I think is I, I uh, have a healthy amount of skepticism toward just mm-hmm. from reading the history of these sort of um, attempts to inject spiritual significance into uh, a really what is really a commodification of a substance. Like when, if someone's a salesman for a substance, I'm pretty skeptical of those claims. Um, but at the same time, I think that we because drugs have become such a, a sort of object of global capitalism, we've we've stripped away a lot of that earlier um and in many ways much richer surroundings for them not just as items to be bought and sold but as as um sacramental substances or even just tools of sociability like tool like substances that have more value than just on the marketplace and i think there's a lot to be said for that um and as an historical topic it's really rich because you get a lot of insight into how people think into the the history of mentalities um, via drugs. That's really the root of my interest in drugs in many ways is that you can see people's everyday life and you can get some insight into their inner life um, by looking at the ways that they use drugs, um, superstitions around drug use. And one I always think of today is, you know, tobacco smokers who have a lucky cigarette that they turn upside, da- upside down in the pack. You know, uh, all the, there's a lot of superstitions around smoking to this day. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, it's pretty common. Or like, uh, I think a white lighter is considered bad luck by smokers, uh, this sort of stuff. Um, but a lot of it has a very old history. So there, it's, it, I think of that as sort of a, you know, modern day echo of a lot of the um, social roles around drugs being grounded in religious belief. Um, so tobacco is certainly in indigenous societies in the Americas was very much grounded in spirituality, but the one I always go to when I teach that we sort of take for granted perhaps is uh, in Catholicism, right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I grew up Catholic and like the idea that there's a, uh, holy wine that is literally the blood of, of God is if you think about it pretty out there, but it's also pretty in keeping with the ways that drugs in different cultures have been, um, made sacramental. Um, and it's actually in some ways become so, familiar that we sort of forget how strange it is you know well you mentioned the psychedelic renaissance it reminds me of um i was going through uh uh patient reports i guess maybe three weeks ago now and uh basically these are reports written by people who are undergoing therapy and um the amount of times that god or spirituality or jesus came up um was was pretty mind-blowing for me uh so the idea that you know spirituality um or higher power of some sort is embedded in the in that um psychedelic experience isn't to be denied yeah i agree it's actually sort of eerie to me how much um these reports have resonance across not just decades but even centuries Mm -hmm. um these same kind of themes keep popping up um and really not just in psychedelics too, but um, if you read, you know, I mentioned King James counterblast to tobacco, he's framing it in language that sounds like a preacher huh. saying that the smoke of tobacco resembles the Stygian fumes of hell, you know, so he's very much making that link. Um, and he's seeing 
tobacco smoking as linked to a cosmic battle between good and evil, which in his case meant Christianity and non-Christianity. Um, mm. It's very common to think of drugs in this sort of, um, um, not just a moral way, but a, an intimately religious way. Mm-hmm. And I think that sneaks in to a lot of our discussions about drugs today without really people paying much attention to it. Mm-hmm. The ways that drugs became turned into immoral versus moral entities is often sort of freighted with a lot of religious categories and modes of thought that we don't necessarily interrogate or, or even pay attention to. Um, and I think it's a great example that psychedelics, I mean, the classic example of a bad trip is like thinking that you died and went to hell, right? That's a, cl- a very familiar theme when you read trip reports of people who had a bad time. Um, it's just always sort of there in the background of, of people's thinking around drugs, I think. So just to change directions very quickly, um, I, I had to tell you that your book, The Age of Intoxication, it's just beautifully illustrated. And um, you, everyone who's listening, they can also go to um, Benjamin Breen's uh, uh, website, which also is beautifully illustrated. But I just wanted to ask you, so Ben, what's your favorite image from, from your book and you know, maybe why? Uh, yeah, I, I actually got into history from wanting to be a painter. So I, I always have a very visual um, interest in the past. So I'm glad that that came across. Um, I wish I could have made the images full color because some of them are really beautiful. And I encourage anyone who buys the book to look up some of them on Google. You can find really good high resolution images for most of them. Cool. Um, one that I'm a huge fan of that I almost made the cover actually is this print from 1620 um, by a printer named Matthias Greuter, um, which is in French, but in English translated, it's the caption is um, the doctor cures fantasy and purges drugs, uh, purges folly with drugs. And it's the one that looks like kind of like a, a brain scan. Someone I, I should have too said it would look like a 17th century brain scan because it's a, it's a really bizarre image. It's a person being pushed into a um, distillation apparatus that actually looks a lot like a pizza oven. <laughs> um, and there's issuing out of the top of it sort of as, as a distillate of his thoughts mm-hmm. are the sort of um, visualized ideas in his head. So you can see what this printer thought were foolish thoughts in 1620. And it's like, you know, a really pretty horse, um, theatrical masks, a lute, a sword, um, hunting dogs, uh, a monkey with a walking stick, a suit of armor, these sort of materialistic things, I think is what it's getting at. Um, and it's literally showing drugs purging the foolishness out of this person's brain visually. And uh, one of the things I wish I could have done a little detail of is that in the background, the drug jars are labeled with metaphorical terms. So in the background, it says one jar is labeled virtue, another is labeled wisdom, um, Another is labeled intelligence. And so it's like this idea that really it's, it's trying to see drugs as um, not just cures or medicines for physical ailments, but for mental ones too. Right. Yeah. Um, so that one, I, I just think is such a rich image. And the other one I really love is um, an 1850s lithograph of an opium warehouse mm. um, in India. And that one I just find really stunning because of the, of the scale. Um, so it's the thing I opened chapter six with, uh, the, the chapter on opium. 
Mm-hmm. And it's if you count the stories of these opium balls being stacked, it's literally it seems to be as tall as like a six story building um, straight up to the ceiling with giant balls of opium <laughs> that if you think about it's just mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And I do kind of question whether the, the artist might have been exaggerating. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they probably were pushing it on the scale. But I did research this this opium um, factory, as it was called, um, in the British colonial parlance, basically a warehouse okay. and, and stacking room. Um, and the footprint of the building is huge. It still exists in ruins. So it seems to be based on reality. And if you look at just the amount of opium depicted in this image, it's enough to like, pretty much um, kill hundreds of thousands of people via overdose. Like it's, if you think about it in that way, it's really, it, it's a powerful powerful image well it has a resonance today too um, yeah it made me think about um purdue pharma um the sort of infamous um company that made oxycontin which i now think is they went out of business or at least they're in bankruptcy filings mm-hmm. i think now yeah at, so at the top of the podcast i i did kind of joke but i hope i didn't come across as offensive about the cover which is a monkey smoking a pipe no it's funny that's a funny cover. <laughs> I, I mean i when i saw it i was like that is awesome um but but what, what's the back story with that um if there is one no there's definitely a backstory i have a um a blog called res obscura um where i have a i think the most popular post on my blog of all time was um called why are there so many paintings of 17th century monkeys smoking pipes. <laughs> There's actually a lot of paintings like that. Um, it's a whole genre of painting uh, called Sangerie paintings, um, which are basically parodying. Um, the way I read them is that they're parodies of early modern consumerism, because in many ways, the early modern period, at least in Europe, but also more generally in Eurasia and in India, China, um, the Middle East, it was really the, the beginning of consumer culture. Uh, of which tobacco was one of the main um, motive sources of that. The idea that you had a tobacco pipe, you have a spice box, you have um, you know a set of cups to drink alcohol out of, perhaps, and that is your possession. It's like something that you are proud of. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look at like um, dining sets from the 16th and 17th centuries, often the most expensive and ornate item is the, the salt cellar or the spice box. Um, and then in 18th century, it's the snuff box, right? The, yeah. the the drug delivery device. And so this became like a really great source of pride in the 17th century, but also an object of fun. And so I think the painters are making fun of the, this new materialism, this new consumer culture around drugs by showing these monkeys copying humans because they're the apes of humans, right? That's the yeah. way they thought about them. Um, and looking really foolish as they do it. And I also think it's just a painting. It's a way of visualizing intoxication. Um, so the monkeys are really not just consumers, but they're also drunk or stoned. <laughs> you can kind yeah. of see it in their eyes. Yeah. And that's, that's why I picked that one in particular, because the monkey has this kind of crazed look. He looks very stimulated, yeah. <laughs> let's say. Um, and I almost see the owl in the background as like a disapproving other mm-hmm. animal. Mm-hmm. It has a sort of um, stern look. Yeah, um, there's some judgment there. There's some judgment there. <laughs> yeah. So it felt like a good um, visualization of that sort of story. And my regret is that the back of the, um, the other part of the painting shows these monkeys um, cheating a cat at cards, <laughs> which I really love. Because yeah. you kind of can make out a backstory that the monkeys got the cat drunk and now they're yeah. like, you know, 
playing a fast one on him. Um, but yeah, if anyone's interested, just look up um, um, the art. The artist is a 17th century Dutch artist called David Teniers, T-E-N-I-E-R-S. Mm-hmm. And he painted, as far as I can tell, dozens of paintings like this. And they're really, they're really cool images. I, I really like them. It, it jumps off the page for me and I just have a good laugh. And I couldn't figure out if I was weird for laughing at it or not. <laughs> So, so I think it's definitely funny. <laughs> uh, so, look, you you your book is like deeply, deeply researched, and you got all sorts of sources in there. So, you, you already mentioned Portugal, right? So, did you have a, a good fun time researching this book in Portugal and elsewhere? Um, oh yeah, I mean, it was amazing. I I really. Um, I can't thank enough all the archivists and other people I met in Portugal. It's a really good place to research a book. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, one of the things I really loved about it was that if anyone's ever been to Lisbon, who's listening to this, um, Lisbon has really amazing pharmacies. They're really old hmm. uh, and well-preserved. And so sometimes I would be studying some of the more esoteric things in the, that ended up being in the book. Like um, for instance, um, this uh, this early modern drug called mumia, which literally was powdered or ground up mummy. So this is like <laughs> what's called a cannibal medicine. <laughs> uh-huh. It's pretty out there, um, but surprisingly common. I mean, it, weirdly enough, 17th century Europeans were, as far as I can tell, the most enthusiastic cannibals in the entire world at that time, because it was very common to eat human body parts in, in the form of mumia. Um, not to mention to use it as pigment and paint. So the cover of the book, has a lot of brown tones. It's not impossible that there's some mummy brown, as it was known, that was used in the paint <laughs> of the cover. Um, so mummy is really common as, as a you know commodified drug in the 17th century. Obviously, it goes away because by the 19th century, people are horrified that it, you know priceless Egyptian mummies are being consumed <laughs> as a cure for you know uh, colds or, or fevers or this sort of thing. Um, but sometimes walking around in Lisbon on at least one occasion, I walked into a pharmacy and saw a drug labeled, a drug jar labeled mumia. And I wondered whether there's still some mummy in there potentially. <laughs> um, and so you would see these 18th century drug jars in these pharmacies, um, that were still were just in the same spot. You know, they had just been in a pharmacy their entire lives. And, you know, now we're on display obviously as, as little curiosities, but it was really cool to see. Um, Another fun thing that I found that I couldn't really find a way to work into the book, but it's always been on my mind ever since, was um, I did some research at the Royal Society Archives in London um, for a chapter looking at the connections between Portuguese drug merchants and um, the Royal Society of London, which is sort of like the first or the perhaps the most famous um, scientific organization of the period. It's the one that you know Isaac Newton was a president of, and uh, in many ways played a, a leading role in in the history of science in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I found a um, a little a, a letter sent to Robert Boyle, um, the, the famous chemist and alchemist, um, from a German um, alchemist and drug researcher. And it was a little sample of some kind of drug that he had sent to him attached to the letter. It was like a little <laughs> folded up envelope with some brown powder in it <laughs> from the 1680s or something. <laughs> and I showed it to the archivist and he was like, oh yeah, that might not be safe. That might, there might be like some mercury in there or something. <laughs> and I just opened it and looked at it and then put it away. But I, it's always been on my mind. It's just like this, 
it it surprised me that there was still something like that just kind of sitting there in an archive um and other things yeah i i really enjoyed um exploring lisbon looking for archives i went to brazil and looked through the archives there um uh, unfortunately a lot of the paperwork i was looking at is very damageable because mm. it's um you know paper doesn't do well in the tropics yeah so a lot of what i was doing was looking at papers where the whole one whole side of it had fallen in some water for instance and it had just gotten like you know waterlogged and completely erased but i could read like half of the document and mm. that was kind of fun just to decode those sort of things well, that, well, so stepping backwards then, I mean, earlier you and I were talking about, you know, writing um, some histories from other parts of the world. So the, is the climate going to prevent uh, and some of this damage going to prevent people from being able to write um, uh, histories like this? I mean, there definitely is a really urgent need for historical preservation um, of documents in places gotcha. that have issues with that. Um I definitely wish more funding was put on that uh, because I can kind of see them being degraded, but I, I don't think so. I'm actually very optimistic about um, the future because these things are all becoming digitized. You know, since I started this project, most of the sources I looked at have become digitized, I would say. And that's really promising in terms of unlocking um, th this research uh, potential for people who don't have the resources to travel, um, you know, across oceans, people in the developing world who are maybe just only have internet availability, but not resources to go to archives, I, I think is a huge and kind of, um, you know, under, under recognized source of optimism for historical research. Um, and I, I really, I hope that more people um, work on digitizing these sort of manuscripts who are involved in archiving and libraries, because um, some of them are really amazing. I mean, just especially as visual sources, I think it would change the game for teaching, for instance, to have more of these um, apothecaries notebooks oh, yeah. digitized because they're just really rich and beautiful. Uh, I was stunned by one in particular that had little doodles. It was an apothecary copying out recipes, but then above each recipe, he would draw like a little image of it. And then he drew a little self-portrait of himself. And <laughs> it was just amazing. Um, Margin it's the it's called the Farmaca of Joseph Coelho. It's owned by the um, National Library of, of Portugal. Um, if anyone wants to look it up, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, there's just so many. It's it's a very rich um, art material base because it's not just diaries, letters, notebooks, but also it's um, actual physical objects, right? Drug jars, chest of drugs. Um, some of which, as a sideline, I, I'm I think it would be really fascinating for archaeologists to um, begin doing DNA studies of some of these um, drug jars. Um, a lot of them are made up of different animal parts from all around the world. If we could sequence them and see exactly where they came from, it would actually, I think, be really rich for the field in terms of opening up new questions. That's intense. Yeah, <laughs> it is kind of because if you're sequencing um, a mumia jar... Mm -hmm. And it gets into a whole sort of eerie world of, you know, is it actually an Egyptian mummy? Is it fake Egyptian mummy? Which a lot of people claimed at the time, meaning, you know, someone just kills someone <laughs> or digs up a, a body and then claims that it came from a mummy. You know, there's a whole lot of strange angles you can go with, with that. 
I wanted real mummy, and I got fake mummy instead. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty common complaint, actually. Um, in fact, in Samuel Johnson's dictionary, he actually has an entry on Mumia where he mentions that. I wanted to get my money's worth, and now I got, yeah. some, I got some fake mummy. Um, yeah. <laughs> hey, so, Ben, um, can you tell us, you must have a favorite story from the book, or a couple of favorite stories. Um, so, like, what is it that jumps out? What pops for you with the book? Yeah, there's a few. Um, one person that I've always sort of thought about ever since, partly because I didn't get to find out her full story, was um, a female apothecary uh, outside of the Portuguese city of Coimbra named Maria Coelho. Mm. And she has always been on my mind because, number one, that beautiful um, apothecary notebook um, that I mentioned, the illustrated one, is by someone named Joseph Coelho. And so I think they might have been related because it was made right around the same time in more or less the same place. And he has a drawing of a, of a female apothecary in the notebook. So it would not surprise me if that was a drawing of her. But I actually know of her from an Inquisition file um, hmm. where she was uh, effectively tortured and imprisoned for being what we now call a crypto Jew, uh, meaning she was um, a converso. She was forcibly converted from Judaism to Christianity, but at least according to this Inquisition file, continued to um, hold, uphold Jewish law. Um, and so she was imprisoned for the charge of Judaismo, just for being secretly Jewish, and was actually um, expelled from the country and sent to, Port to Brazil, um, where she just disappears from the record. But I've always wondered what happened to her, because I only have the first half of her story. Um, and that's always, it's just one of those things that when you do research, you can never answer every question. And that's yeah. one that I've always wanted to know what happened to her in Brazil. Because she's penniless, she's cut off from her family, but she's trained as an apothecary. So I imagine she continued to be a healer of mm -hmm. some kind, um, just in much reduced circumstances, I suppose. Um, and the same holds true for a lot of the, uh, the, the elements of the story that involve the slave trade. There's these really tantalizing stories of enslaved healers. Um, People like, uh, there's a great book by, um, actually your colleague, James Sweet at University of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. um, it's a book called, uh, about a, a African healer named Domingos Alvarez, who um, is, is a really fascinating character because he moves between Africa, Brazil, and Portugal. Um, and these people are just fascinating. I wish we could know more about them. But in, just in terms of like a, an interesting or funny story, um, the one I love from the book is this East India Company merchant named Thomas Bowery, who ends up in a, a port city in India called Machili Patnam, and asks his bodyguard if he can find uh, cannabis for him, <laughs> because he notices, as he puts it, everyone there um, uses banga, is what he's calling it. It's mm -hmm. it's um, it's cannabis, edible cannabis or drinkable cannabis um, instead of alcohol. So he's really intrigued by this, and he takes some with five or six other merchants and they get incredibly stoned. It's like, it's really, really remarkable how stoned they get. Um, he says three or four of them lay upon a rug, um, complimenting one another in high terms, fancying ourselves to be as emperors, which I think is funny. And then another one sticks his head into a jar for four hours, <laughs> weeping oh, <wow>. bitterly. <laughs> so he's having a bad time. And then another one apparently um, beats his knuckles bloody, boxing with a fence post <laughs> so i've i don't think i've seen anyone get that stoned in my entire life so no. it's always stuck in my mind as like yeah. 
pretty remarkable reaction to, to cannabis uh, intoxication. Um, and then just as sort of a sad figure, um, this guy, George Salmanazar, we don't know his real name or even where he was from. He was probably from France, but he, he was an orphan who disguised his identity and ended up in turn of the century London right around 1700. Um, pretended to be a Taiwanese prince, which worked for a little while. He got to meet Isaac Newton in that, oh. in that disguise, as it were. Um, he even apparently tried to teach his made-up Taiwanese language to people. <laughs> he, he just invented it whole clock. Yikes. But um, yeah, he, he's, a, he's sort of a con artist, but in a way that I find somewhat sympathetic because he, you know, he's an orphan and, and really just is trying to survive. Um, but he ends up becoming an opium addict and leaves behind this really remarkable account of opium addiction, which predates Thomas De Quincey and pretty much any other addiction memoir I've heard of. Um, he writes it in the 1720s and 30s and 40s. And after his death, in his will, he says, please publish this book. It's called The Confessions of XXXX, a reputed native of Formosa. Formosa is what Taiwan was called at that time mm. um, by the British. And, you know, it's mostly known as like a kind of funny or colorful story of an imposter. But I also see it as an addiction narrative, uh, yeah. addiction and recovery, because he claims to have um, solved his opium addiction. But the way he solves it, <laughs> it really points to how much our thinking about recovery has changed, because he says, rather than taking opium, I made myself a special combination of laudanum and cider, which I drink a pint of every night. <laughs> and that has cured me. Um, of course, he's still an opiate addict by our standard, but he thinks that it's better, at least. And it becomes this whole, like, redemptive narrative of his life. Those are awesome stories. Those are really awesome. Um, <laughs> so, hey, what's next now? You've, you've, you've crossed this off the list, and you're, the book's coming out on the 20th of December, which is pretty soon. Um mm -hmm. Are you, are you turning the page, so to speak, and moving on with another project? Yeah, I'm, um, you know, I thought I would make my next book on the history of magic and technology, which has always been my other big interest. Um, and I have a whole project on that, but I, I unexpectedly got really caught up in the 20th century history of psychedelic drugs uh, while I was finishing up this book, because I started reading a lot of... Um, ethnobotany uh, and anthropological work from sort of mid 20th century people. Um, I, and, you know, things like, did you, have you read uh, Mike Che's book on mescaline? It's yeah. called mescaline, um, History of the First Global Psychedelic. Yeah, it's a great book. The type of material really started to grab me. Um, it was really just because I was sort of fact-checking my book and looking through the existing literature on things like peyote, mescaline, um, psilocybin mushrooms, their context of indigenous use in Mexico and Mesoamerica. Um, but through that, I got really uh, uh, just sort of taken up in this, in this story that I didn't know existed of um, the uses of experimental drugs in the forties and fifties. I, I always thought that Timothy Leary was sort of the beginning of that. And when it comes to LSD or, you know, if you go back a little earlier, people like um, Humphrey Osmond, yeah. um, who's in your book, right? Do you talk, do you talk about him? I do, yeah. Yeah, um, he's and fascinating. Aldous, yeah, Captain Hubbard, Aldous yeah. Huxley. Um, but I, did, I knew, I kind of vaguely knew of that stuff. Um, but then there's all these other stories that popped up that I had never heard of. Um, 
Margaret Mead was involved in LSD research, doing ethnographies of people on LSD in the early to mid fifties, for instance, um, or finding out about all these um, people I'd never heard of, but who really were influential, like Oscar Janiger. Um, he was Cary Grant's psychiatrist. Um, mm. He gave Cary Grant LSD. And apparently Cary Grant took LSD at least 80 times in his life, which is kind of remarkable. <laughs> um, and these kind of things really got me interested in this other book project that is not just about psychedelic drugs, but it's really about the new culture of experimentalism um, in, in the post-war period, immediately post-war. So it's sort of how the the atomic bomb research um, inspired this new sense that technology could be transformative, um, both in good and bad ways, that it could actually change the trajectory of humans, not just help them along their way. Um, and that gets tied up, I think, in the rise of psychopharmacology, um, so, you know, what comes to be called psychedelic drugs, but also in um, hormone therapy. So I'm, I'm actually writing a book now that is um, contextualizing um, psychedelic drug history of the 40s and 50s against the history of um, what's called um, narcosynthesis. Um, so using sedatives in treatment uh, as a sort of therapeutic tool for catalyzing emotion. And also in the context of um, hormone therapy for um, gender confirmation. Um, so the very early stories of uh, trans men and women um, are, are strangely tied up with the history of psychedelic drugs. Um, they're often taking both in the 40s and 50s, I found. And the people who are involved in, in treating um, you know, people uh, with schizophrenia are also involved in psychedelic psychiatry and in um, gender confirmation um, surgery and hormone therapy. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's a story that I'm still kind of researching, but I'm really excited about it because it's just the, the main takeaway for me is that the 60s was a conservative retrenchment period from this earlier period of experimentalism. That it was actually society and even scientists themselves reacting against mm. an older period of uh, utopian thinking and optimism about what drugs can do. Um, in some ways, you can see the 60s and 70s, I think, is the hangover from that immediate post-war period, um, as opposed to seeing it as like this counterculture break of, with uh, you know, the men in the gray flannel suits of the 50s, which is how I used to see it. Oh, that's off the charts. Interesting, man. Especially with all the different topics at play, butting up against each other. Yeah, that's the challenge. I'm still figuring out how to kind of um, package it. You know, you know, that's the problem with the book is you need to have the one sentence description of it. <laughs> but that took me like a paragraph, so I'm not there yet. Mm -hmm. But I've been pretty deep in researching it this year. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And I just got to say again, thanks so much for taking the time to, um, to talk. Uh, this is been the new books network drugs addiction and recovery podcast and today we've been talking to benjamin breen about uh the age of intoxication origins of the global drug trade which is coming out um december 20th with the university of uh, pennsylvania press so thanks so much again thank you so much it was great talking to you <laughs>